From Islamic Finance News, the world's leading Islamic finance news provider, this is IFN Podcast. Hello and welcome to the IFN Weekly Podcast. My name is Nasreen and I'll be your host today. Joining us in this episode today is Matthew Martin, the founder and CEO of Blossom Finance, a Sharia-compliant investment platform that allows investors from around the world to invest in microfinance and community banks, and also offers a blockchain-based platform to raise funds. Today, we talked to Matthew about Indonesia, where he is currently based. So um, I think let's just jump right in. I want to know about Blossom Finance's um, upcoming Sukuk plans. Absolutely. So um, alhamdulillah, we're, you know, we're very fortunate that uh, we did a pilot Sukuk um, back in September, October, the instrument yielded in excess of 15%. Uh, it was uh, 10.5% on an actual U.S. dollar basis. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so alhamdulillah, we're very happy with that. So following off the success of that, we've lined up four new issuers in Indonesia, all of which are very similar organizations to the previous Sukuk. They are BMTs, uh, which stands for Baital Mal Dan Baital Tamwil, which is basically combining Islamic charitable funds like Zakat, Waqaf, Infaq, Sadaqah, Mm-hmm. using those funds to help lift people out of poverty. And then when they have a productive business, financing them with commercial finance. And that's where our suku comes in, is uh, financing micro and small entrepreneurs in Indonesia, in central Java primarily, uh, funding those small businesses, uh, using a profit-sharing structure, which is really, we feel something very unique about our sukuk. Um, the previous Sukuk, as well as all the four upcoming Sukuk, will all be variable profit rate uh, based on profit sharing principle, which we feel is something quite unique. This will be issued using your smart Sukuk platform? Yeah, that's right. The way to understand the smart Sukuk platform is basically combining the efficiencies of technology with a capital market structure. You know, in the past, it required a lot of third parties and intermediaries to protect the rights of the investor, to ensure the obligations of the issuer were being met, etc., um, what right. we've done is we've brought technology to bear on those traditional processes um, using something called uh, a blockchain smart contract. So a smart contract is is effectively a computer program that runs in a distributed computer. Blockchain is basically just a computer, but instead of just existing on your co- laptop or your phone, it runs simultaneously on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of devices simultaneously. Right. So there's some advantages with that model, um, but you know, most interestingly for uh, investments, it's it's protection. You know, data protection, making sure that the data can never be lost. The data is always recoverable. Uh, as long as you have access to the internet, you can get access to that data. So it doesn't live on anyone's computer. It lives literally on hundreds of thousands of computers all around the world. Um, transparency is another benefit that um, all the the payments, the periodic profit payments, the uh, the amount of, the, of money that was invested and then the repayment of that principal at maturity. All those things are done in a very transparent manner. One way to look at it is effectively like a, a triple entry accounting, some people have called it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back in the, I guess it was the, the late Middle Ages when uh, it was the Renaissance, right? Early Renaissance when double ledger uh, entry accounting, uh, double entry accounting was introduced. It completely eliminated an entire class of fraud. Now, blockchain is effectively adding a third ledger, a public ledger that's uh, shared and and replicated all around the world. So it doesn't entirely eliminate the opportunity for fraud, but it it certainly reduces it. Minimizes it. Absolutely right. Right. Absolutely right. What would be the challenges? I mean, that all sounds very good, but 
let's talk a little bit about the challenges of like issuing sukuk in this way. Certainly the biggest challenge going into this type of model is that the amounts are, are very small. So if you look at, you know, the upcoming issuance, it'll be 2 billion Indonesian rupiah, which is just shy of 150,000 US dollars. Okay. So for capital markets, that's like a drop of water in the ocean. So, you know, that's why obviously the traditional uh, financial intermediary structure just doesn't work. Um, it's too expensive. Um, and those, that cost structure just is not, we can't bring that to bear in this model, which is why we need to use the technology first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So by using the technology, we're able to overcome that challenge of the, the cost structure, the financial intermediary problems, while right. still offering maybe not as high a level of governance and protection, but what we feel is a sufficient level of governance and protection, one that should make infe- investors feel safe and secure, uh, but doesn't involve all those high costs, right? For $150,000, obviously the same level of governance is not required as, you know, a central bank issuing a Second challenge I would say is, uh, is education. Uh, you know, microfinance is not something that everyone are familiar with. I'm sure you are familiar with and people in our industry are familiar with microfinance. But outside of that, I mean, what, what we're really trying to do uh, is appeal to the kind of retail Muslims, you know, the, right. the investors or social impact retail investors. So for them, you know, maybe they've heard of microfinance or maybe they haven't. So we have to educate about microfinance. And then second, we have to educate about, you know, the fact that it's profit sharing. It's variable payment, right? Everyone's conditioned to, even Muslims, are conditioned to dealing with debt-based products or products that are Islamic, technically, but very much designed to replicate conventional debt-like structures. So Mm -hmm. even for the Muslim and the Sharia affinity or the halal affinity investors, there's a problem of education about variable profit rate, profit sharing, nisba, all those types of things. Right. So that's and, and of course with the, uh, the the institution too, the issuer too, right? Problem of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's no easy, there's no silver bullet when it comes to overcoming education. It's just something we have to do. We have to socialize what we're doing. We have to try to explain it in clear terms, and and certainly something we're we're very active doing in terms of education. How has the reception been with retail investors and whoever you're targeting? You know, that's that's a great question, and um, we're very fortunate to say that the reception's been. Uh, put it this way, there's more demand from the investor side than thus far we've been able to meet from the instrument side. Or in other words, there's more people who want to invest than we have investments available. Gotcha. For. Mm. Uh, and part of that is because of our cautiousness. You know, this is a new model. There's a lot of things we're testing out. And so we've, we've moved very, very cautiously doing the pilot project and later last year and now launching these, these four new issuances. Um, but we routinely, what's very encouraging, we routinely get emails from people who are on our wait list. We have an official wait list. You can sign up on the quick plug, blossomfinance.com, uh, first, first come, first serve basis. But mm-hmm. we routinely get people that email us and say, when can I invest in this thing? I've been looking for a product like this. I've been nice. looking for a product that is, uh, that is profit sharing. And, you know, I, I kind of compare this to um, now there's a, a, con- a popular concept uh, in technology technology, the, the, the plant-based meat products. So there's this, uh, impossible burger, oh, so the yeah. impossible <laughs> burger. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You've heard of this. So, yeah. you know, I look at the Islamic finance world today a little bit like that. So most of the products on the market are a, a very, um, a very intentional effort to replicate debt like structures with mm-hmm. Islamic contracts. And that's sort of like, you know, if you're, um, if you're someone who is a, a meat eater, 
and then you want a non-meat option, you're going to seek out products like an Impossible Burger. You want right. something that really looks, feels, tastes, smells like meat, right? Yeah. But uh, for you know a normal sort of non-institutional retail kind of what I'll call mom and pop investor, mm-hmm. the, you know they're vegetarians, so to speak, right? They're mm-hmm. they're just looking. Look, they want to make they want to place their money someplace relatively safe that's going to make moderate to high returns and uh, something that they feel hand to heart, they feel good about is halal, is, uh, is it compliant with their, with their religious belief. So I compare our product to, you know, our product is like a falafel, right? Falafel yeah. is vegetarian, but it's not trying to be meat. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to ask about regulatory support now. Do you think that in general, does Islamic finance in Indonesia have sufficient um, regulatory support? If not, what kind of support would you like to see? I would say this. Um, in Indonesia, the regulators are sort of of two minds at the same time. So the structural nature of the way Indonesia is regulated um, has created a situation where there's, there's very, very strong conceptual uh, conceptual support for Islamic finance, both within you know, policymakers and within um, reg- the regulatory side. But the issue is the structure. Let's take OJK as an example. So OJK, Autoritas Jasa Keuangan, the equivalent of the SEC of the US, right? So they have several organizations within OJK that are actively, like their, their title is Sharia. For example, Pasar Modal Keuangan Sharia, which means Islamic capital markets. Mm-hmm. So there's an entire team working on Islamic capital markets. They do a lot of the hard work for, um, you know, some companies. They have a list of Sharia compliant um, equity index. Mm-hmm. It was Sharia compliant equity index list. So if you want to just go pick stocks by yourself and make sure they're halal, well, they've already done that hard work, right? So they're doing fantastic work trying to advance Islamic economy through the capital markets. Um, now, structurally within OJK, they are not the group that regulates. So they, they're kind of like a research think tank and they propose policy, but mm. then it goes to what's called the legal team. The legal team actually has to author the regulation and then enforce the regulation once it's, once it's been um, officialized or what do you call it. Um, they actually enforce it. And their mandate is across the entire scope of the capital market. So they have no, they're not, they're neither incentivized nor are they focused on providing any advantage or any um, special support for Islamic or for halal or for Sharia. Mm -hmm. So they're just doing their job. They're doing a fantastic job that, but their their mandate is not Sharia. So it's, this is what I mean about two minds. Conceptually you have great support. You have um, champions and advocates within the regulator uh, pushing you know, Islamic products and trying to support them. But on the regulatory side and the policymaking side, there's actually not that. It's the, everything is treated as equal, conventional and Sharia. And if you look at some of the regulations, they literally just, they basically have one regulation. Um, and then it says, uh, oh, by the way, if you're Sharia, you need a Sharia board. Mm. So, uh, you know, launching a Sharia product is literally just, okay, you have to have a you know, a couple Ustad, a couple Islamic scholars who are going to sign off on it and that's it. Mm. So there's no, I mean, you could see from a, from a corporate perspective, it's, it's tricky, right? Because there's no incentive. And also from a, um, from a fiscal policy perspective, 
Um, you know, there's currently not, there are a few instances where there's um, the, you know, for example, there's tax incentives for certain investment structures to attract foreign capital into Indonesia. There's not yet any sort of incentive structure to incentivize investors who are doing more like risk participation, which is what right. we're trying to do, right? From a, you know, from a, from a fiscal policy perspective, if I'm the minister of finance, I want capital coming in that's effectively equity, right? Mm -hmm. Because equity is capital at risk. Um, that's going to have a big multiplier effect versus debt capital. Debt capital is good. It can have a multiplier effect, but it's thirsty. It needs that constant repayment. And if there's a default, it can put really systemic challenges and problems um, in, the, in the capital markets and, and from a fiscal policy perspective can present challenges. So, you know, we're hoping and we've had, uh, we did a, we did a, uh, what is it called? a roundtable discussion with the Ministry of Finance specifically on our issuance last quarter. Um, they said they're, they're very happy to support it. Uh, you know, anecdotally, they, they said they're very happy to support it. They like the concept, et cetera. And so now it's going to be probably a long process of trying to, you know, push forward. Hey, look, you should offer some kind of tax incentive, you know, lower withholding tax for foreign investors, um, et cetera, to encourage this kind of equity-like direct investment. Because, you know, that ultimately is going to have a, a much better impact on the economy and on the, on the, the, the um, uh, tax collectability uh, than, you know, just pure debt-based uh, debt investment from, from abroad. Given the support that you are receiving as an industry, uh, what kind of trends in Islam, like what kind of fintech trends would you like to see Islamic fintechs adopt? Great question. Um, I think the, the one trend I would like to see in Islamic finance is a trend towards better governance Mm. Um, there have been, uh, I would call horror stories of wow. investors who have gone into, let's call them crowdfunding, peer-to-peer -peer, um, investment schemes, and the governance was just not, not only absent, but in some cases, intentional fraud, um, not fraud wow. to steal investors' money, but to conceal losses and things like that, right. which is totally unacceptable. Mm. Right. To, to be, you know, before you can even call yourself Sharia compliant, you, you have to be uh, if you have an, uh, an obligation to an investor to represent them, you have to first and foremost meet that obligation before any right. sort of Sharia compliance screening on top of that, exactly. Right? Yeah. So what I'd love to see is a trend towards better governance, better, uh, better um, self-regulation within the, the industry. I'll give you another concrete example. There's a very popular um, crowdfunding platform. Um, and I won't say the name. Um, but mm -hmm. they do some investments in Indonesia mm -hmm. and on the investment page, they have a very b bizarre disclaimer at the bottom of the, of the page. It says literally, this is not an advertisement for investments in Indonesia. Now, literally the entire page of marketing above is about an investment opportunity in Indonesia. Mm. And then there's a footer below it that says in fine print, this is not an advertisement for investment. <laughs> so what's, in what's that disclaimer for? Exactly. Why? So that's very, very bizarre. It's clearly not the case. Clearly, it would not stand up to regulatory scrutiny. So, you know, it's one thing if like where we are, we're very, we're very open to say for foreign investment into uh, Indonesia, we've pushed regulators on, on specifically codifying and allowing foreign direct investment. And they've said, look, 
it's allowed. It's not specifically covered in any regulation. Like we don't have a regulation that says it is permitted, but it's also not um, banned by any regulation. So you're, you're fine to continue operating with that model, but we're not going to put into any regulation like, and this is allowed for foreign investors because mm. our regulatory scope is Indonesian citizens and residents. Fine. We're very happy to say that very explicitly state this is a, this is an unregulated financial product. It falls under this regulatory exemption, et cetera. Right. right. But it's very bizarre when you try to you just like, you know, kind of wash your hands and say, well, you know, this is an investment. So if you give <laughs> us money, like that's, that's very, very bizarre. And um, right. I think that really does our industry a disservice. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it, it makes us look like a bunch of amateurs. It, uh, and frankly, it's not in the spirit of Sharia, right? Sharia is supposed to hold us all to a higher standard of governance, a higher standard of, you know, the contract must be clear. Everything must be very explicit. Yeah, I get you. I get what you mean. Well, um, I'm also curious to know, uh, since, since the COVID-19, you know, crisis has started, uh, everyone's been saying that, you know, you know, the coronavirus has really changed the game. Um, I'm mm. curious to know, has it really changed the game for Islamic fintech? Have you seen any changes? What is the effect of like the whole coronavirus thing happening on the industry? And maybe particularly in your experience with Blossom Finance specifically? Um, maybe I'll speak first to our experience. Mm -hmm. um, so we were very fortunate that our investment is our investment is concentrated into the real sector. So traditional market traders, grocery stores, you know, convenience stores, you know, farming tools, farming equipment, et cetera, stuff that is, is necessary for people to buy, whether or whether or not, you know, the 23 other hours a day, they're locked down at home, they still need to buy those things. So fortunately for us, our portfolio was relatively unimpacted by Corona. Um, now, it did took, take a, a dip uh, during the peak of Corona, Mm -hmm. but the, res the returns never went below on, a, on an annualized um, yield to maturity, never below 12% in Indonesian rupiah terms. Okay. Um, and in fact, still came out at 15%. So, you know, we attribute that to being invested in the real sector. Uh, in Indonesia, for example, the, the um, social distancing restrictions mm -hmm. did not apply. They specifically exempted traditional market traders you know, grocery stores, those kind of micro businesses that are providing those essential services. Right. So that's, you know, that's very fortunate for us and, and for our investors. And it makes sense, right? Um, when there's macroeconomic turbulence uh, globally, you're less likely to be impacted by that if you're invested in real sector economy stuff in a place like Indonesia, right? You can, in theory, there should be a very low, you know, uh, covariance. So the, the one thing though is now culturally in Indonesia, the idea of remote is it basically forced everyone to immediately accept the idea of remote, which we feel is a very positive. Um, culturally, you know, I'm from the U.S. Coming to Indonesia, the idea of having a video call was really made very foreign to a lot of um, you know potential partners and, and people we talked to in Indonesia. Until you know, COVID, it basically became the norm. All of a yeah. sudden, everyone knew how to use video calls. Yeah. Digital signature is another great example. So for Islamic tech, fintech, um, digital signature is key. Um, Indonesia's had a digital signature law for over a decade, but very much you know wasn't widely used. And so now COVID is making everyone just embrace that wholesale. So it's been this forcing function to really make everyone 
you know, be able to do remote and be able to do sort of digital signature, which is, is obviously a very positive thing for what we're trying to do. Right. I'm with you. All right. Um, I think that's our time. Thank you so much for all of that. I think before we go, if I could ask you um, one last question about the upcoming issuance, when do you expect this to happen? Yeah, great question. So um, within a couple of weeks here, I mean, maybe as soon as this week, um, but contract is ready to roll. We're, uh, we're sitting with our finger above the button. So it'd be before mm-hmm. the end of this month. It's a 2 billion rupiah. So it's like okay, $150,000. Yes. Um, but as soon as that's fully subscribed, we have three others. I think the total capacity is just shy of $400,000. So between the four, they make up a, a total of about 400000 So first come, first serve. Um, we're, we want to get this to as many people as possible. We're, so we'll be setting a, a maximum cap. We haven't decided on what the maximum will be. But yeah, first come, first serve basis. Uh, first one before the end of the month in Great. October 2020. We're quoting 12% as the target. We anticipated actually being north of that, probably closer to 13, but what we're quoting to investors is 12. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a 12-month tenor, uh, a bullet-covered a bullet covered sukuk, so it's um, it's fully asset-backed. So um, asset-backed Murabaha financing from day one. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's um, asset-backed protection for investors. If there was a, an issue of non-payment or collections, um, the investors will have this pool of financing that will continue to, um, provide profit sharing payments and the capital that's collectible, um, et cetera. So uh, target profit rate of, of 12%. Uh, it's being issued in Indonesian rupiah. Um, mm. From a regulatory perspective, classed as foreign loan. So we're not allowing any Indonesian retail investors. Okay. Um, under Indonesian laws, this will be classed as a, a direct foreign loan. Uh, and uh, the issuer is regulated under the Ministry of Cooperatives. They are uh, legally authorized to accept direct foreign investment uh, under that structure. All right. That's great. Thank you so much then, Matthew. No worries. Uh, Thank you so much, Nisreen. Thank you for listening. For more discussions on the Islamic finance industry, log on to www.islamicfinancenews.com. You can also listen to IFN Podcast on your favorite platforms, including iTunes and Spotify.